Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Dan Kaminsky, founder and chief scientist at White Ops, who is advocating for an NIH for security. We also discuss his approach to coarse grain security, the pros and cons of Docker and other container solutions, and how the mere act of listening to people better can improve security for everyone. Enjoy the episode. All right, Dan, thanks for joining me today. This should be good. Mm -hmm. So... You have been talking recently about how we need an NIH for security. I have been. So so break that down for me. What is that? What do you mean by that? Um, and then I'll start ask, trying to ask pointy questions. It, the hard truth is that there are just societal scale problems. Cities burn. People need to transit from one location to another. We need food that doesn't poison us. The reality is, is there's just problems that affect all of us if they're present. It's not like, you know, this group or that group. Um, the Internet is not a safe place right now. And more importantly, the tools we're using to interact with it um, are relatively broken. This is a problem. We shouldn't be ashamed. Humans have been building buildings for thousands of years. We've been building software for, you know, not. Right. So, um I think we need to have a, a larger scale response to the, the problems of the Internet. It has been a tremendous boon to our society. It is the heart of our economic growth. It's the greatest growth since the Industrial Revolution. But it's got some problems that we're not just going to guilt people out of. We've got to do some engineering work. So I want to come back to the tools bit. And I think we'll get there through this. But I want to talk about the people... The people bit first. So, you, you know, you said it's not a problem. We shouldn't be uh, feel feel bad about this. But but a lot of people seem to take umbrage at the notion that they would have to take this kind of approach. Right. Like, why do we have to go with some big regulatory government agency that's going to take all the fun out of, you know, right? Like there's there's some attitudes on the part of people that are very contrary to this idea. People aren't wrong. Like we have regulated several sciences out of business. Um, but I'm not talking about a regulatory approach nearly as much. I'm talking about let's fund the research to figure out how it's not a giant regulatory train wreck. So there's a difference between, say, the um, food and drug regulation aspect of the government and the NIH. And so that's why I think it's interesting to bring up like what the what it is the NIH do if people don't know what the National Institutes of Health do. Um, when you bring up research, that's really the the common thread there. So that it's government funded research into yeah. these things, right? We've done a tremendous amount of actual work against cancer. Okay, cancer, heart disease. Like, there's a lot of scenarios that just don't happen anymore. We have good treatments. HIV is a tremendous thing that we've had success against. Look. <sighs> Security didn't invent the term snake oil. We took actual snakes and we turned them into actual oil, okay? There was a lot of garbage out there. Look, some chemicals actually have positive effects on humans. This is a fact, but not all. In fact, not most. We needed some sort of effort to figure out what technology in the pharmaceutical realm worked and what didn't. And that doesn't come for free. It doesn't come from volunteers doing uh, silly experiments. It comes from long, hard, steady work in researching what works. But at the end of the day, 
you just take a pill, okay? It's not like we turn medicine into you have to spend a couple months at the hospital, at least ideally. Like we figured out what processes work and what processes don't. But we have we research are- now, right? So what's missing? What's missing from the research into security going on right now at at, at institutions, at educational institutions, and you know various places like that around the country, the world? What's missing? Operational operational feedback from the industry. We, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of theory, academic about what actually security stuff but you you actually dig into it and people make a bunch of theories and talk to each other about the theories meanwhile operationally stuff keeps burning okay we don't have theories about why buildings burn we actually go ahead and test stuff mm-hmm. and and that's not happening enough in the defensive space um so this what means hap- that people have to share their data about what's burning though right yeah yeah we're gonna have to share a lot more look the fbi has crime statistics and it's incredibly useful on a societal scale. Right. Like there needs to be this lack of shame that things are burning and be like, yeah, this burned. Here's what happened. He, one month long investigations. Let's do some month long investigations about what happened. And get that data out there and try to respond to it. Look, like this is not the first time we've had problems in an important tech. It won't be the last time. But let's actually work on it. The reason I talk about the NIH is because they actually fund working on these sorts of problems and things do get better. So how it seems to me that to a certain degree, beyond the notion of funding this, which I think is the probably the least uh, debatable part of the whole idea, when you get into how do you get people in industry to, first of all, share those kinds of data um, there's some, we're just, I mean, I know we were just talking about that a little bit, but there's some hurdles there that I want to dig into a little bit. And then there's also, I think some cultural resistance to this notion still, right. In, in, from the perspective of, of, of software engineers and, and, and technicians in industry, they don't want people in there poking around about how they're doing these things. You know, we had a lot of resistance into the existence of vulnerabilities in the first place. I remember 15, 20 years ago, you went to a developer and showed them a bunch of bugs. They would give you a pile of excuses. We had like security bingo, this board, and all the things we had heard. It's not to say that people are not in denial about the vulnerabilities they have still, but it's not like it used to be. Like developers kind of understand they can screw up and things got to get fixed. We actually really do accept everything auto patches. Auto patching reflects a world where you ship something and it's really a service. Like you're not done with it. You don't get it, get it as good as you can, get it out the door and move on to the next thing. Put no, it in every- a box and ship it to somebody? Yeah. That's not reality anymore because you're going to put it in the box and it's going to have some bugs. And if you don't have a way of dealing with it, uh, you're in trouble. So, so it's a different world even when there are people who are resistant change happens. So how do we change the incentives on the sharing side? Because that that seems like, first of all, it probably involves lawyers. Uh, and and secondarily, well, lawyers, actually, there's no second. <laughs> how do you get in- industry organizations to share this kind of data for this kind of research? How does that work? You know, I think there's a lot of sharing going on with each other. Um, but I, it's 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 ad hoc. It's anecdotal to a certain degree, right? Like it's not research driven. I I think it just comes down to funding people. 
we keep trying to pretend we can solve problems automatically or we can solve it. Uh, you know, you know, don't worry, it'll just fix itself. Nothing fixes itself. Look, I was there when Microsoft went through their big lockdown of Windows, which used to be one of the most derided security products in the world and is now relatively considered one of the leaders. Look, that didn't happen itself. That happened because a bunch of people worked for a bunch of years with stable funding. And that's the kind of things that we need. We need stable funding. We need environments where there's – we need to get rid of victim shaming, okay? We need to stop pretending when there's a hack like, oh, this company got hacked. Oh, that company got hacked. Everyone's getting hacked. Let's yeah. stop pretending like it's some embarrassing thing and start actually creating environments where this is normal, at least the thing that we're all experiencing. We have a fire. We have our fireside chats. Let's actually start dealing with this stuff. Yeah. That's where I think. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with you in principle. I, I fear culturally we have a long way to go, not actually within the technology industry, but outside of it. Um, I mean, if you look at the way the world and in particular media tends to still treat things like airplane accidents or train accidents or I don't know, pick whatever else. Right. There's still such a heavy blame culture in the way those things are written up, discussed. I mean, you can practically pick the words that are going to be used, you know, when those kinds of things are are, are discussed. So. That's the part that, that, that concerns me, honestly, more. I mean, I think you're right. There's sharing going on within the industry. And when there's some funding, that I think that will actually push that further. But the fear aspect publicly, perception-wise of this, is I think is a much harder challenge to tackle. Man, I wish our train wrecks were as rare as actual train wrecks, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> that, would yeah, be, right? <laughs> that would be a success. Look. The news talks about what's unusual. It's unusual when a train crashes or when a plane crashes. Because we've done all the work and the research to make that happen, right? Look, the news does not report on car crashes, and car crashes straight up kill huge numbers of people. Like, look at the news. Look at what's actually happening out there in the field. Yeah. And a lot of what I perceive is there's bad security advice. Like, this is what you can do to keep yourself safe, and it doesn't. And we need to start getting a lot better at differentiating the bad advice from the good. Because there is some good. Look, cars got safer. Code can be written safer. But, you know, just because something's this big mathematical construct of beauty does not mean it's safer. Code nobody can write protects nobody, okay? The difference between science and engineering is you actually have to, like respond to real world constraints in engineering we need more engineering so you I th- you know you're, you're going to talk about this at this conference we're having in new york as well mm-hmm. um, about some of that engineering you know the, the the prevailing notion right is defensive security is this never-ending field where you're constantly having to attack against everything and defend and attackers only have to get in once blah 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 like everyone's heard it a million times but you've been trying to rethink that landscape a bit can you talk about some of that yeah you know i think uh to nerd out a bit i think we've been trying to build these incredibly fine-grained security models based on the presumption that every little bit of a system potentially might need to talk to every other little bit of a system so you get what in Windows we call ACL hell for the ACL controllers, access controllers that just get enormous. Linux has SE Linux. All these very, very fine-grained systems, and I don't think they work. I think there is a finite mental budget for developers for figuring out how much of the security gunk they have to know. 
and you exceed that budget and then you end up with another layer, another class of, of, of developer that just focuses on the security part. And, and, uh, it turtles all the way down. Uh, I've become this real fan of coarse-grained security, where it's like, you know, this is the interface. Well-defined interfaces, known good state. Good example. You have a bunch of machines. This is a real-world thing that happens in operations. You have a bunch of machines you know get compromised from time to time, and you know developers need to go ahead and access them to figure out when they're not compromised, why are they slow, why are they crashing, why are they unusable, whatever. So how do you let your developers who have, you know, very sensitive desktops access these machines in the data center? Well, you know you do things where the only signal that gets through is a keyboard, is a mouse, is a screen. And in fact, that might literally be like an RDP connection, a remote IP, a remote desktop connection that goes to a device that that's all it transmits, keyboard, video, mouse. You don't let the network, the developer desktop talk directly over IP to the machine you know probably got compromised. Okay, what we've done is we've squeezed the signal down to really, really almost nothing, to a deeply well-defined interface. When the only thing the thing can do is what it's supposed to, at least operationally, you get some security properties that people can reason about, that they can think this is what the system is doing. A lot of security is just making computers behave like people think they're behaving. <laughs> Isn't that just a lot of computers, period? <sighs> yeah, but like there's a lot of other gunk that comes along for the ride. That security is just like, let's just strip the gunk. Um, the thing I've been building lately, uh, you know, containers are extraordinarily popular. It's finally a way of deploying code that makes sense to a lot of people. It's like, oh, okay, when I deploy my code, I don't need to think, what version of this um, shared object or DLL is there? Mm-hmm. I've got my blob. I put it there. If there needs to be a hundred of them, there's a hundred. I've given instructions. The magic of Docker, the actual core of it, you strip everything out. It's here's a list of instructions to build another one. Not just I know, here's a copy. It's like here's how you make more of these. And it's about reducing the complexity to the developer for making systems do what they're supposed to do. How do we reduce the gotchas? Look, there's alignment between what developers want and what security wants. Everyone wants the system to behave in predictable manners. Now, as a a deployment methodology, Docker's got some really cool things. As a security mechanism, there's a lot of goop that Mm -hmm. that we sort of paper over, okay? Look, virtual machines were a mess of their own side. You bleed for every drop of performance in a virtual machine because you've got this to simulate and that to simulate. Meanwhile, the, the, the container approach effectively has a bunch of user spaces sharing a kernel and the kernel's like okay everything's like it is normally i've just got a bunch of processes okay i always got a bunch of processes what's well, a few hundred more no problem no problem i got it under control thing is is we've got all this goop that's being shared between the one kernel and the many user spaces and no one quite knows what the goop is what needs to be saved what needs to be restored what needs to be secured we pretend we know there's this great pro- package called CRIU, C-R-I-U. And what it tries to do is it tries to package it up and store all the goop and save it for later and restore it. And I tell you, I've seen it work once. <laughs> and, and it's important, okay? It matters 
that we're trying to package up all this goop and we can't find it. We, we miss this. We miss that. And what it says is, is that no one quite knows all the state and all the information that's being exchanged between the isolated environment and the important kernel. That's a big deal because it's literally the scenario that means this is going to be rough to secure. Because that's where the hackers hide. You don't know what you're tracking. That's where they'll go find go. them. Yep. That's where the bad guys live. Yeah. No one wants to go back to the way things worked back in virtual machines. No one has enough disk space for that. Right. <laughs> you're all, in the only world. You're always moving around. Sixty gigs here, hundred gigs there. Hey. No. No one wants to go back to that, but. Intel in particular, as noted, there's a bunch of really good properties of the virtual machine architecture. We don't need to do deployments like the old VMs, but we can use the properties of the actual hardware. So I've been exploring that myself. I have a bunch. I have this protocol or mechanism called Autoclave. Autoclave is basically doing a bunch of stunts between containers and VMs. I have like full Linux and Windows environments booting up in you know less than a quarter of a second, fully functional, fully operational, fully ephemeral. You go in, you do whatever you're going to do, you leave, and things destroyed. The goal I want to get to is when you interact with a server on connection, a virtual machine spawns, you do your business, it leaves, it's okay. Things People think that you need to have these things called unikernels, where you don't have a kernel, and it's literally the connection comes in and it boots up into Node or OCaml or whatever language. And they're like, hey, we'll just order developers to do this weird environment. Developers don't want weird environments. They want the same thing they've always had. But it turns out computers are really, really good at doing the same thing over and over again and remembering from the last time they did it. Shocking. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out there's this architectural stunts you can play where, where it's just, I want you to do the same thing you did before. I want you to do it on every connection. I want you to do it efficiently, and I don't want you to throw away everything after. This is actually technically feasible. I've been playing with it, and I'm going to demonstrate it. So, and so, yes, if anybody's interested in that, here's the pitch. Dan's talking about it at the security conference in New York in November, and I'll put a link at the bottom of our post about this that has all the details on that. Um, but, so I want to talk about the ephemeral nature of it, because... I think from a, a technical standpoint, what you describe, it makes perfect sense that that is more secure, but I can imagine that gives some people the heebie-jeebies. Well, it's not that everything is ephemeral. Look, why did PHP work? We hate PHP <laughs> in all these realms. And meanwhile, all these developers are like, this thing actually does the job I wanted to do. People still use it. It's a very much still a thing. Yeah. Oh, people pretend like it's like not used. What are the three most popular environments in, in the entire web space? JavaScript. Drupal? Look, <laughs> server side, it's Drupal. Yeah. It's WordPress. Right. It's Rails. Yeah. These are, you know, languages that are derided by people who are all proper and great. Meanwhile, look, they work. Right. Why are they working? We're not finding out. No one goes ahead and sits down with a developer like, really, what are you doing here that's great? You know you write Hello World in PHP? You write Hello World. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's another aspect that is kind of beautiful. You know you don't tend to write when you're writing stuff in PHP? You're not writing web servers, okay? Mm -hmm. Apache is your web server. Nginx is your web server. Someone else is handling socket connections. Like, 
look, that architecture, that design works, and it does a very specific thing people aren't paying attention to, which is the person comes, like the, the client comes in, they get a page rendered. If you want to maintain any state from that connection, you got to run out to a database. You got to package up whatever you want to remember and you got to write it somewhere. Okay. That's a well-defined interface and that's impressive. Look, develop look, when you have well-defined interfaces, people can reason about how the system is working. It's when you have all this like ambient stuff that is is a problem. So ephemerality is really basically saying if you want to store anything, you got to go out and actually store it. No one thinks about their system relative to like the last 50,000 times someone interacted with it. Okay, you have these pipelines that architects put together. And if you ask the architect, well, what about what happened three days ago? They're going to be like, well, that's not part of the system. It's part of operations. And you know what operations keeps having to do is shoot the system in the head. We shoot the system in the head as a service. It's crazy. And the reason why we keep having to reboot, restart, manage these systems in a, a, a embarrassing ad hoc way is we're not tracking our state very effectively. And that's the place where hackers hide. Look, the ephemerality of my VM container system is actually interesting because you know, we always think there's these trade-offs and, you know, you get a little bit more security, you get a little less deployability, like it's a zero-sum game. Let me tell you something funny, okay? I did not set out to make a hyper-performant uh, virtual machine solution. Set out to actually make some security boundaries here. Um, those VMs that are running all of Linux, all of Java, all of Chrome, building like a Chrome developer environment in these things, these environments don't just boot up incredibly quickly. Okay, look, I always thought like, can't we do like arithmetic in a computer? Like, can we add like one plus one and not have it get owned? There's something between basic arithmetic and full code execution that is well-defined, meaning an attacker can't turn it into, I'm going to format your hard drive. And this virtual environment that I have, because it's so well-defined, I can basically restrict it. I'm not going to get surprised later, oh, you needed this functionality, oh, you needed that, which is an experience you have with Docker. Oh, I needed to be able to increase my number of open file handles. Docker's like, you don't get to do that. You're a container. Like, what? What? <laughs> what? No. Okay. Look, this environment that I'm building, fully ephemeral. I don't have to worry about weird storage. You're root. Do whatever the hell you want. I'm not going to block you. And from a security perspective, those environments are running in like 13 system calls and a couple of memory maps because a virtual machine is incredibly well-defined. And so you can say, you get to read some bytes, you get to write some bytes, you get to make a few calls, I think I can secure this. I never really understood these these other operating systems. There's a thing called L4, which is a, a really well-defined, simple environment. You know what this kernel does? It goes ahead and moves memory around, and that's about it. And turns out, like, developers don't want to write to that, but they don't have to care. They talk to their particular kernel. That kernel talks to the secure environment. Two kernels actually make your life better. Give the developer the API they want. Model the kernel that you're always used to. Model system calls as, like, a really fast shared library and everything makes sense. So the developer talks to their kernel, they have, you know, all the system calls, all the functionality. They get root. I don't care. 
And then that isolated environment, look, at some point, it needs to talk to a network card. At some point, it needs to talk to some storage. That bridge can be a really tiny bridge. And so that I have a really tiny bridge working. It's all the security. It's all the, the developer compatibility. It's actually really performant. It's not a zero-sum game. Intelligent design is actually a more manageable system, not a less one. All right. So the question I have now is, what do you do with the organizations that are nowhere near this level of technical sophistication? I think you make green fields in the organizations. Look, we are constantly rebuilding, rewriting, remaking something in every org. Even even the most sclerotic, slow-moving company you've seen has branches that just need to solve new problems. Like, there's no choice not to. So let's go ahead and build the internal knowledge in these companies for how we do things the new ways. You've seen a lot of companies change their change their stripes, okay? Microsoft went from laggard to leader. IBM is doing huge amounts of interesting stuff. Like it's not like it's a rule of the universe that even our slowest environments have to be uh uh slow forever. Right. So so in my mind, I am laser focused on real world operations. I think if you're not thinking about defense and real world operations, you're not thinking about defense. Because there, look, we're talking about actual attackers. This is player versus player programming. So I think a lot of what we're doing is not really studying operationally what happens when our security theories are, are put to the test. I, 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 hold it as an absolute possibility all this ephemerality all of this you know secure syscall firewalling all this stuff when it hits practice who knows maybe it doesn't work but that the game is to find out okay so last question that i ask everyone i believe everybody especially on the de- defensive side where there's not so many uh hero- you know perceptions of heroic awesomeness you know you're you're not in the spotlight until the shit goes sideways kind of culture. Uh, um, but I believe that all uh, all people, but especially in this audience we're talking to, uh, defensive security folks, have a secret superpower. <laughs> and I want to know I, what your secret superpower is. My secret superpower? Um, try to listen. <laughs> Look, people got problems. They really do. And and uh, no one listens to their problems. No one listens. <laughs> Look, let me give you a good example. There's someone in HR. You know what their job is? Their job is to open PDFs from the internet. Most of those PDFs are from idiots. You know it's true. I know it's true. That's their job. And I hear security people being like, you should never open PDFs from the internet. That, that's their job. Don't, don't do your job. Do. Right? <laughs> yeah. If they don't do their job, they're going to be fired and replaced by someone else who does their job, which is open PDFs from the internet. So... The solution is not don't don't do this thing that is your job. The solution is make someone's job safe and and uh, you know try to listen to people. And I think if you actually listen and understand and sympathize and empathize, you know, a- empathy gets a bit of a bad rap. You know what empathy does? Empathy is actually caring about someone else's problems. Empathy is actually feeling what they feel. Empathy is how you make things that don't suck. 
it is literally the process of putting your mind in someone else's life experience and being like, okay, this is where you're coming from. What do you need? Because, you know, no one wants to get hacked. People have a budget for not suffering that. People don't want their houses to burn. People don't want their bank accounts emptied. It's not that we don't have buy-in. It's just we have to figure out how, you know, when you go home, it's not the first thing you do when you get home. Think about what do I have to do right now to not keep my house from burning down tomorrow? That's a lot where we are in security and it's not okay. So if I've got a superpower, it's realizing we shouldn't try to just get everything. We should figure out how we can integrate in other people's lives. Wow, that's a perfect note to end on. So thanks so much for joining me today, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Dan is at D. Akamai. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>